キャストの発売を待つばかりだ三四郎は君たちの心にセガサターン Hello everyone, welcome to Sega Saturn Shiro, the only podcast that goes back in time to fix Sega's mistakes. With us are our beautiful Shiro's as always, Dave, Claire, Myself and our official new Shiro, Mel, also known as Sega Lord X. Hey guys, good to be here. Hey there. I was glad to be here. Nice, nice. So, as usual, before we start, let's、uh, give some personal updates. Dave, what have you been up to since the start of the cast? I put out a bunch of racing videos. I put up a video on Shitoko Battle Drift King 97. Real fun game, and、uh, it was surprisingly good. You know,、uh, the drift mechanic feels real great, and I got a good response on that. And then、uh, Father K. Simon over at the junkyard, he asked me to do a Choro Q Park video because he was completely lost. And that was、uh, actually a lot of fun to do, too. And honestly, all I did was seek to try to get him past like the language barrier and the menus and stuff like that. I know K. Spoke to the fact that the game doesn't really grip you right away. And I think that if you're spending time in the training course, not really knowing what to do, you know, it's definitely off putting. But once you get into those races,、uh, I think actually Claire mentioned that she's a huge like kart racing fan. So I think that would be a game that Claire would really enjoy. It's got some like Mario Kart esque gameplay going on. And then finally, I just put up a, a video of Initial D. This was a game that we reviewed quite poorly on the podcast. And I still hold a lot of the opinions that I did about it, but I just don't think that it's as bad as, as I really said that it was. I hadn't played it in about a decade, and going back to it,、um, I found some charm. I found some you know, fun gameplay. Once I really got into it and got used to that kind of awkward drift mechanic,、um, it became manageable. It was lots of fun. Yeah, so.、Um, So that was a lot of fun and, and getting good responses off the videos. And I'm just a real racing enthusiast. And I love the fact that Saturn you know, has such a variety of different racers. Nice. So,、uh, what about you, Claire? What have you been up to in your little world? Well, the biggest thing that has happened for me since last cast is I finally received my copy of Resurrection Panzer Dragoon Saga 20th Anniversary Arrangement in the mail. And I got to tell you guys, I could not be happier. Um, I had the chance to listen to the tracks from the album back on the 20th anniversary, but、um, I've really been waiting to see how the actual physical release would look. And it's just a beautiful display piece.、Um, the album comes in a digipack, and、um, the front cover it actually has dual covers. The front cover has the English、um, Panzer Dragoon Saga title 
while the back cover has the Ozel Panzer Dragoon RPG. And there are two different artworks. You can display it front ways or back ways. Um, probably my favorite thing about this product, though, is the booklet. Um, it actually contains a little bit of commentary from the series composer um, Sayori Kobayashi, as well as Eri Ito, who was the vocalist for the game's main theme, Sonami Aureru Aksansitu. And I really enjoyed reading their thoughts on um, the arrangement process for this album, as well as what their experiences were like composing the original PDS soundtrack back in 1998. Um, additionally, there's some commentary from um, the Saturn Trilogy director, um, Yukio Futatsugi, and some of the other Team Andromeda staff. Um, the version I have here is the CD version. If you ordered the vinyl, I think that should be shipping around mid-April, so not too much longer to be holding out for that. But um, I just really want to recommend, if you haven't picked up Resurrection yet, um, definitely go for it. Um, support Sayori Kabayashi and also show Sega that we have interest in having this series resurrected. Yeah, I mean, I'm still waiting on that vinyl. I'm, I'm a big vinyl head, and again, this is like the second cast. I forgot to get that dumb that dumb download code and put it on my iPod. But I will. I'm going to make sure after this cast I will download it. And then next episode, I will complain how I forgot to do that again. <laughs> so we'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you guys know. But uh, is there anything else you got, Claire? Well, um, I've been doing an anime stream with you. I know that's something you've been up to. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I started a anime stream called uh, Anime Stream Saturdays that I've been doing with Claire and a special guest. Um, we initially had a, a starter episode with with Mel last week, and unfortunately, my audio was not uh, getting picked up on the mic, so nothing I've said was on there. It might seem like it was just Claire and Mel, but I was there talking, but the way that I have it set up is where the desktop records everything and disables the mic, but the way I have it for my video things that I need a mic, but just didn't pick it up, but uh, we'll get that all fixed up, and uh, we're going to do a redo on Sunday, which should have dropped by now, but... We're going to have another one uh, Saturday, uh, 2 p.m. EST for Magic Knight Ray Earth. And that's going to be the first game we're going to be tackling is Magic Knight Ray Earth. And hopefully we can get different games like uh, some of the uh, Sailor Moon beat-em-ups uh, and some anime-inspired ones like uh, Police Knots. And we'll try to go through them and uh, give our honest opinion about it. Yep, I know I'm excited to be doing this. I'm a huge anime fan and... I'm looking forward to continuing to hang out with you and play some of these games. It's going to be sweet. What about you, Mel? Are you excited for next Saturday? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, not only, you know, is the anime, you know, genre just cool in general, but a lot of these games associated with it are really good games, too, that, you know, I don't think too many people have actually played. So, you know, it's good to get that information out, too. Nice. So, uh, yeah, get excited for that. Um, but besides that, I had a couple updates. I just got an original Xbox and have hooked it up using Excellent Kai and been playing some Halo 2. I noticed an issue where the uh, where I have some issues with the disk drive, and one of the kind people or at the Excellent forum were nice enough to send me their Dead Systems link. So I'm going to give them a shout-out to uh, Kitsunet from the OG Xbox Revival uh, group on Discord. So thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it, and I'm going to put that in right after this cast, hopefully. Uh, besides that, um, I actually found a really good deal on a Framemeister, uh, $300 for 
the units, uh, the cords, and all the uh, the hookups for that. And the nice man that sent it me was Thomas G from the uh, Framemeister OSSC group. So I thank him for that, and that should be here Wednesday, and we're going to be getting a big quality boost to that stream. So I'm very excited for that, and hopefully everything turns out all right. That is awesome, Pat. What a great price you got on that first thing. And second, I'm really looking forward to see how our streams look. It's going to be great, so I'm extremely excited. But besides that, uh, I think that's my last update. So uh, now that you know what's new with us, let's talk about what's new with the Saturn. So uh, as everyone knows, the Saturn cases were posted on Amazon was it about a week ago, right? Last Saturday? Yes. And uh, everyone was going crazy about it. It just came out of nowhere. This guy named VGC online posted the... the. It was a pack of 10 for about 40 bucks. And basically, I was lucky enough to be the first to get one in because the distribution unit was really close to where I live, which I think was located in Vegas. So... I basically did a review on it. I posted on our Facebook page, and essentially what I found is that uh, it's pretty decent quality. Um, everything's pretty much the same until you get to the disc holder section, which is a tiny bit different, where it has the has a different feel to it. Like a di- it, like the original has a matte feel, the other one has like a smooth feel to it. But uh, another issue that was running into it alongside that is that it was having a hard time to stay on the case. And I believe that was due to the little nibs uh, not being in contact with the case fully. And there's been some rumors that it might have to do with the molding they used, but there's no info yet. But uh, for what it's what it is, I think it's all right. Um, there's a plenty plenty good reviews online. I know that Sam did one for the Saturn Junkyard, and uh, we did one. So if you're interested in learning more about it and going into a greater detail, check out my or Sam's review. So Dave, uh, I know that you had some additional info you wanted to share on the cases. Did you want to share that with the audience? Oh, it was just that um, a lot of people were speculating on whether it was test stock from Limited Run. And it's been confirmed that it, that's not what it was. It was just, you know, this guy who had these things made up in China and then drop shipped to Texas for Amazon fulfillment. So he kind of like sent them an example, you know, to, to kind of copy them off of. But it's not as perfect as, you know, Limited Run plans on, you know, really putting it through the paces and, and making sure that they're putting out something that is to exacting standards. So, I mean, in my opinion, I think if you need something fast and quick, I, I would go with that. But if you really just want to, you know, just sit down and say, okay, I'll pay whatever it takes to get these cases to be 100% pristine and accurate, mm-hmm. I would just wait for LRG. But I don't know how long that's going to take, unfortunately. So another uh, another big news topic was the uh, new Sonic R teaser. Um, I think it was a couple weeks ago they posted this like R thing with a, it was like a, a silhouetted thing where it's like Sonic and R, and everyone was speculating it was a new Sonic R game, and apparently that's sort of what it was. I believe the name was Sonic Racing Extreme. Yeah, um, that's kind of what I gathered from that teaser. I mean, we had the R logo that appeared in the Saturn game. Um, the thing that I was kind of confused about with it is that there were cars being shown in the background of this teaser and I was thinking hmm how similar is this going to be to the original Sonic R where we had the characters racing on foot um 
I'm really curious to see how this is going to shape up to be. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm pretty much under the impression that it's going to be nothing like Sonic R. If there's any justice in the universe, Sonic R will go away forever and never, ever come back. So hopefully that is definitely the case, and this will be an all-new game. So the official title of it is Super Sonic Racing, and I think it's going to be in the same vein of the Sonic All-Stars Racing Extreme. Yeah, those were good games too, so that's actually pretty good news. So what are you, what are you guys betting on for a bonus character? They already added uh, Ryu Hazuki, they added uh, the character from uh, Skies of Arcadia, hell, they even added Wreck-It Ralph on there. <laughs> Well, if we're going the route of um, racing transformed, I want to see Edge from Panzer Dragon Saga. That's my oh man, that would be insane <laughs> if they could get Edge in there. Yes, Good or one. even Ozel. I mean, you can even do like the running on foot thing with the dragon, like uh, in uh, the beginning of Zvi. Yeah, I would love to see that. So the game, I believe, is going to come out on uh, the PS4 and you know Xbox One and PC, like Sonic All Stars Racing. But uh, there, I don't think there's been any announcement if it's on. Uh, it's going to be coming on the Switch, but I, I know I know how you feel, Mel, but I would love to see it on the Switch. It would be a no-brainer for me. Just those kinds of graphics, you know, the Nintendo Switch were, was made, you know, for those kinds of games. I mean, you look at Mario Kart, I mean, that game looks incredible on the Switch, and something like this should as well. All right, so speaking of new games, uh, Magical Drop 3 was uh, recently released on modern consoles, and for those that don't know... Alongside a Neo Geo game, it was also released on the Sega Saturn. It's going to be released on uh, PS4, Switch, and Xbox One for approximately 8 bucks. So, uh, personally, I played a little bit, and I was not a fan of it. I couldn't get the mechanics, and I just kept losing to my friend. But I think that might have to do with the controller I used on top of it. Yeah, I've got to say that my impression of that was the same. I actually played the Neo Geo version. Um, love the art style, but I'm definitely not great at the game. But nor am I really a puzzle gamer in any sort of a sense, so could just be me. The Saturn version is an okay game. It's definitely not one of the better puzzle games on the system. Um, if you want to play something modern, you know, I would probably shoot for, uh, you know, Poyo Poyo versus Tetris was uh, pretty good. Definitely. That game is insanely fun. I, I played that at a local con and I had a blast. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, Dave, I'll let you go into this next announcement. Sure. So, uh, we as a brand, Shiro Productions, Sega Saturn Shiro, and Sega Lord X combined, we've decided to start offering you guys wearable merchandise. We decided to open up a little shop where you guys can get some Sega Saturn Shiro swag or you can get, uh, your Sega Lord X sweatshirts, hoodies, we've got t-shirts, tote bags, coffee mugs. If you want to support us, if you want to represent Sega Saturn Shiro or Sega Lord X, you can get yourself over to segasaturnshiro.threadless.com and check out what we've got there on the shop. And we plan to add new designs periodically. Um, There's really no limit to the amount of designs that we can add, you know, so, but we're going to, what we've got on there, there's a good mix of stuff. So if, if you want to, if you love Sega, if you love what we're doing and you want to represent, um, it'd be an awesome thing to grab yourself a hoodie or a t-shirt and wear that to your next game convention. Yeah. uh, Check our store out at Threadless and uh, yeah, it'll help support us, support Sega Lord X. 
and hopefully make you look pretty. I guarantee you it will make you 50% sexier wearing that shirt. That is a confirmed scientific fact. So, uh, as per usual, why don't we go over our obscure game of the cast, which is Elevator Action Returns, or Elevator Action 2. So, I guess for the basic rundown for this game, uh, the original Elevator Action is included in the Sega Saturn game, which is why the name is, instead of releases, Elevator Action Squared. Pronounced Elevator Action slash Elevator Action Returns. The original Elevator Action Returns is unlockable via code by being the first game. For those of you that know, know about this game, it's a, basically a title arcade game that uh, is basically where you're a, I guess, was it a secret agent of some sort? Yeah. Sort of a secret agent, and you, you go through these different corridors and elevators and try to stop these terrorists. And it's a ton of fun. Uh, the Saturn version is the definite home port due to the flickering and picture clarity issues that were run into with the Xbox and PS2 versions. Initially, uh, GameSpot gave it a 5.2 out of 10, but uh, in time, I mean, it became a really popular game, and it's in a lot of people's top 10 lists, and it definitely shows with its price, where I think it's around $150 for a used copy of it for the Saturn. Yeah, I was checking it out on eBay today, actually, and it looks like complete in-box copies are going for, like, $250 plus, and... Um... You know, I never had really even paid attention to this game until I started getting involved in the Sega Saturn Collectors of America and Saturn Junkyard groups, and I always hear people talking about it, and um, I actually played it for the first time before this cast, and I've got to say, the vertical action in this game is pretty cool. Um, That's really what stood out to me, as well as um, the background music. I really enjoyed that. Um, I think it's a, a lot of old-school um, 2D kind of shoot-em-up fun. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I feel the same way you do. I, I really think it was unique how you can use the elevators to use it as a covering system, use it as a, uh, a way to sort of throw bombs and leave the floor, and sort of help, cl- help make your way through it. And it's kind of weird how just the elevators are a tool in your arsenal compared to just another prop on the map. I mean, how do you right. feel about it, Mel? Well, you know, it's one of those games where you, you, when you first start playing it, you don't really understand exactly what kind of game it is. It looks like you're just you're going along this very simple platformer-style setup, and you're shooting at guys that are popping in and out of doors. And if you don't put any time into it, that's the impression that you'll leave with it. It's, it just doesn't seem like it's a very special game. It's one of those games that you put a little more time into it and all of a sudden the levels start to blow up. There starts to be some side-scrolling action to it. It's just not vertical. Um, You know, you get some really cool special effects in there, some scaling effects. Um, The game really starts to open up as you get deeper into it. You know, uh, uh, vehicles start to crash into things and blow open buildings and the game really really opens up and it becomes an incredible experience once you really you know put that time into it and and that is why I think it took it some time to actually 
gain in popularity because most people would pop it in, play the game for five or ten minutes and be like, what the hell is this mess? And they cut it off. And once, you know, people, the word got around, hey, put some time into it, that's when the popularity hit the game, and that's why it's so beloved now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just really fantastic. I mean, I'm going to be honest, this is the first time I've been I've played it, and I really enjoy it. I love just these whole, the mechanics of it, and just different ways to play. I mean, and I'm learning new stuff about it every time I pop it in. Would you say it's worth the price, though, that it's going forward nowadays on the Saturn? When you start to talk about the games that have started to fall into the collector's, you know, section of the Saturn library, are any of those games worth their prices? I mean, is any one single game worth two, three, four, five hundred dollars? I mean, that's a hard argument for people, man, because, you know, most people don't have that kind of money to just blow on games like this, especially old games like this. So, I mean, on one hand, if you're a collector and you want to, you know, complete your, you know, Saturn collection, it's a good game. It's a rare or it's a semi-rare game. And, you know, yeah, you got to have it if you want a a complete Saturn collection. But honestly, if you want to just play it with your pseudo Saturn or if you want to play it, you know, with a mod chip or however you play your games, you know, I think that that is perfectly fine. (laughs) Definitely, definitely, I would not pay $250 $250 for it and I absolutely love the game yeah I think that really just all comes boils down to what's worth it to you like for example I would pay gladly pay $500 for Snatcher if I had the chance to but that's because I love the game so much and there's so much replay value for me and maybe somebody feels as passionate about about that about elevator action that I do for Snatcher and Hideo Kojima and whoever developed uh, elevator actions and just title games in general. So yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely an interesting argument. And whether it's worth it or not, I think it's, like you said, it's really subjective to whoever wants it. I mean, if you want to play it, there's definitely ways to play it, though. You don't have to kill yourself over paying $250 to experience this, uh, this fantastic game. So with all that in mind, um, what are you guys' final thoughts on this? Is this a game that you'd recommend? Absolutely. It is a 9 out of 10 game for me. It's it's really fantastic. There's a lot of good mechanics. It's a fun arcade game, especially if you just want to pop something in and play for 5 minutes. It's not something you have to sit down and dedicate time to, and it's one of those games where it's like, it's easy to understand but difficult to master. Which I think is what makes a game a game. Uh, what about you, Mel? This is definitely a pure arcade experience, uh, very simplistic in its setup and execution. There's nothing here that you're going to misunderstand. The key here is to play it, master it, get a little deeper into it, and let the game really hook you. Um, You know, the game is difficult the uh, deeper you get into it. So if you like hard arcade style games, this is definitely the game for you. And, and yeah, I mean, definitely it's a high on up there, eight or nine out of 10 game for sure. Nice. And uh, we'd like to remind everybody that uh, Chaz will be playing this on April 1st at 6 PM on Sunday on his usual streams. And uh, he'll be going through this and it'll be fantastic. I'm excited to see how he does. And I can't wait.
guys. Well, uh, today we have a really special treat for you. Mel, also known as Sega Lord X, was nice enough to come in and do an interview with us and talk a little bit about his experience with Sega and his channel and his sort of experience as a YouTube creator in this atmosphere. And if so, none of you guys have heard of Sega Lord X, he has an awesome YouTube channel that was up for a little over a year and, uh, and put out a lot of awesome content. And so we're just really, really happy to have him with us and be able to ask him some good questions. Yeah. So uh, without further ado, did you want to uh, start us off with the first question, Dave? Sure. So Mel, well, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great, Dave. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. That's great. And um, kicking this interview off, we just want to ask you a few Sega-centric questions. Uh, first off, how long have you been a Sega fan and what really got you started? I pretty much was a Sega fan from the very beginning of when I started playing games in the early 80s. Uh, Sega's arcade explosion, you know, there with their super scalers right around 85 is when I really became a diehard Sega guy. You know, I was around 10 years old then. I was enamored with the arcade scene and it just pretty much went right into consoles from there. Awesome. Nice. What would you say your favorite uh, arcade system of that era was or arcade game? The game that blew me away the most in that little stretch of time was probably Thunderblade. It's not the best playing Sega game, but when you really consider the year that game was launched, it was like 86, 87. That game absolutely blew everything else out the water graphically. I mean, I could stand in the arcade and just watch that game loop on demo for hours. It was so incredible looking. Nice. Yeah, it really was. It's a great game. All right, Mel, as a follow-up, first off, it's great to have you with us today. As someone who's been a Sega fan for a very long time, I'd like to know, what is your favorite Sega console and why is it your favorite? This one's pretty easy. It's definitely the Sega Saturn uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it was pretty much the first system that I ever imported at the very first day it was available in Japan. Uh, being in that import scene from the very beginning gave me an insight into that system like I had never had before. I experienced most of its games the first day they were available, um, and it came at a time in my life that was really rough, and that system was something for me to cling to, and I did, and no system has even compared to it since. So we did you actually get it day one in port? How exactly did that work back in the 90s? I mean, I know nowadays we have all these Facebook uh Facebook sellers, all these guys that do these import things online, but what was it like in, like, 94 when the system first dropped? Well, basically, I was lucky enough to know when the system was actually going to be released. Uh, the game magazines at the time had made it pretty well known that the system was going to launch in late November. I pretty much had an import store that I dealt with regularly because I had been buying PC Engine and Mega Drive games pretty frequently up to that point. And I called them up. They were going to have it virtually the same day it launched in Japan. 
And of course, to get it here, it was a lot more expensive, man. And you had to buy a bundle. You could not buy just the system. And the bundle came with Virtua Fighter and a puzzle game called Tama. Yeah, it was $700, man, to get it that first day. And they only would ship it uh, UPS uh, insured. And that added like another, it was nearly like $100 additional just for the shipping. Wow. And that's, and that's 90, 1994 money, right? That's not inflated for today, right? Oh, of course. I mean, it was a very, very expensive investment. That's dedication. Yeah, I mean, did you do anything like that before with any any of the other systems, or was the Saturn your first import system? Imported a Mega Drive and a PC Engine and a Super Famicom before that, but none of them the first day they were available. The Saturn was my first import system that I got it the first day it was available. That's insane. You, You must have been like the talk of your town. Or the talk of all your friends, like, oh man, you know, he got a Sega Saturn. Oh yeah, when uh, when the guys at the local Babbage's found out, you know, Babbage's was GameStop back in those days, and when yeah. the guys at the Babbage's found out about it, they were like, oh my god, man, you've got to make videos, you've got to show us what it is, and yeah, I was pretty popular there for a number of months before Sega ruined it all with the impromptu US launch, man. So was the the hype there, though, like when you had it? I mean, did it feel any different from when the American system came out? When the Japanese system launched, I think Sega was in an incredible position. There was a lot of hype leading up. People were interested in what Sega was doing for a next-generation console. And it was the year of bad press, you know, (laughs) that was in 1995 that strangled that excitement because it was becoming pretty uh, obvious that the Sega uh, Saturn wasn't going to have a Sonic the Hedgehog at launch. Most of the Genesis properties that had been really popular were nowhere to be found for the system. And everybody was looking at the Sony PlayStation like, wow, this thing is getting a lot of run in the game magazines and the media. And all of that together just stifled the Saturn. And it really hurt it when, you know, it finally did get here. Yeah. uh, Going into that, uh, what would you say your favorite Sega Saturn game is? I mean, out of all those imports and the U.S. release, you must have had at least a good number of uh, both, right? Oh, yeah. Um, If I had to name an overall game that is my favorite, it would be Dragon Force uh, without question. I mean, I wouldn't even have to think twice about it. To this day, it's still, in my opinion, one of the most unique games on the system hasn't had any follow-ups on any other systems you know except for the ps2 remake and there you know that game just has so much replay value it's a long game it's got multiple characters that you can play through with the story changes a little each time you play it and i mean that game is worth every penny of its current price in my opinion how much is it going for now um, I think if you get the U.S. version complete in box, you're probably looking at a little over a hundred bucks. I've seen it go disc only, uh, fairly reasonable. If you watch the auctions, a lot of times a disc only can go anywhere between sixty and eighty dollars. Nice, that's not a bad price. 
Mel, have you uh, had a chance to play the translation of Dragon Force 2? Oh yeah, I've gone through and defeated that with all the characters as well. That is an incredible game too. I really enjoyed it. I can't believe they finally got the English translation done. Fantastic game, but the first one is still better. Cool. So being lord of all things Sega, I'm just curious, you know, your YouTube channel popped up, gosh, I guess a couple years ago, and uh, and you started small and just kind of like it blew up kind of overnight. And I'm just wondering, like, what made you decide to start a YouTube channel in the first place? Oh, in the very beginning, I think it was just the overall lack of Sega personalities on YouTube. I mean, at the time when I was looking at YouTube, you had channels like uh, Saturn Memories, which were, I mean, they were fun channels, but they were gameplay channels, you know? There wasn't anybody pimping Sega as this classic game, you know, company and these awesome systems and games. And talking about that primarily, it's like where is Sega's love at here? It's it's all Nintendo. It's all or it's all modern stuff with Sony and Microsoft. I mean, where are the Sega representatives at? And that's what really made me want it to start uh, the YouTube channel. Yeah, I agree. I feel like there are a lot of diehard Sega fans, but they kind of stay in the woodwork. You know, like they they're not really a whole lot of them that are interested in coming out and doing video and stuff like that. You get tons of people that are just Nintendo this and that. Yeah, I mean, uh, even at even locally, I mean, at a local convention I went to, uh, I had I had a, a two PVM setup with uh, a Saturn and Dreamcast, and then a Sega CD the other day, and I was really the only one that had any Sega console representation there. I mean, all they had in the free play area was PlayStation, Nintendo, and even Xbox was there with all their consoles. It's kind of a so. metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's sad. I mean, even yeah. even Sam and I were joking on Twitter. Um, that one Australian guy posted a uh, uh, Xbox, Microsoft, Sony fans, show your love. And then Sam was like, "What about us, uh, us Sega guys?" And nobody nobody like responded from there. It was all the Sega guys talking back and forth. Like it was me, uh, Mastercast, Saturn Memories, Sam. And it was like a, a perf- perfect analogy of where Saturn is today. Or sorry, Sega where Sega is today. Yeah, guys, I've got to say that that's been my experience, too. Um, Here locally, there are some Nintendo content creators that live around me, but I have never met another Sega fan. So I think the climate is pretty similar here where I am. So, Mel, we've kind of all established at this point, after watching your videos for years, that you are indeed the lord of Sega. I'm curious, though, what's behind that name? How did you come up with Sega Lord X? Well, you know, taking a cue from what I was just saying, it was because Sega didn't really have any representation on YouTube outside of gameplay channels. Pretty much when I made up the name, it was just sort of like, hey, I want people when they click my channel and they see that banner at the top. There is no question about what you are going to see on my channel. There is no, you know, doubt. You know, you're not here to see anything Nintendo. You're not here to see anything modern. You are here because a guy is calling himself Sega Lord, and he's going to preach to you about the Sega love. Amen. 
Was the X like a nod at like Dracula X or Shinobi X? You know what it was is when I came up with the name in the beginning, it was just going to be Sega Lord. I mean, I thought that was good enough, but there was a rapper that I kept finding in Google searches that was named Lord Sega. So I was like, man, I need something extra so that if someone searches for something of mine on YouTube or whatever, that it would point them directly towards me and not towards other content. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was sitting there like, you know what? I'll just add an X on the end of it, man. And the name was born right then. So as a YouTuber, I know there's a lot of stuff going on now. A lot of things going on with subscriptions and uh, monetizations and all that other stuff. But I was curious, the first year of Sega Lord X when you started on YouTube, what was that like? Um, In the very beginning, it was a real learning experience for the content that I was making and how YouTube works. Um, I had never done any type of audio video presentation or edited any kind of, you know, media content whatsoever. So my videos started out fairly poorly. I am not afraid to admit Um, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And it took some time to get the video right, get the audio right. But I think there at the end, before I shut the channel down, you know, I was actually getting out some content that, I mean, I think I was really starting to produce stuff that was at the very least comparable to what some of the bigger YouTubers was putting out. Mm -hmm. And um, YouTube is the most backwards you know, place I have ever dealt with in terms of content creation since then. Um, YouTube does not make it easy for the small guys to start. Your content does not show up in any searches. I mean, I can go on YouTube and I can type the exact name of my channel or one of my videos and I'm still 30 videos down the list. You know, so... You know how I found you, Mel? I do this thing where I just get bored of all of the big guys that are out there because they've all been played out. You know, some of their stuff is really good. Some of it, uh, you know, some of it connects, but a a lot of it is just, you know, the same old thing done over and over again. And um, one thing I kind of like to do is type in Sega Saturn and then just sort by like the most recently uploaded because I like to see what new folks are doing, you know? And that's one day I did that, and you're like one of your first videos came up, and I was just like, "Oh, look at this guy! Like he's got a good delivery, and he knows what he's talking about." And I and and I subbed, and it was like from there, um, you know, started shouting your channel to my friends and saying, "Look, this guy's up and coming. You guys gotta subscribe. You guys gotta check this guy out." There's another. There's a couple other people on YouTube I feel that way about, and the only way I was able to find them was just by sorting by most recent. So that's real funny that you should say that YouTube yeah. really does try to hide content. Yeah, I mean, well, there's so much of it on there. I mean, people that uh, make all this content, there's so much. I mean, I mean, just the other day, I looked for the, the Saturn cases, and I saw like five or ten people voting it, and most of it was just, you know, the popular guys that put the videos up. Oh, hey, Saturn cases. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and nothing, nothing, nothing. I know a lot of people have a lot of talent, but a lot of those videos are just, just like a crappy webcam, a crappy USB mic, and talking about it like this really close up and really loud and 
I'm not gonna call it anybody. I mean, it, it's just a generalization. Everybody I found with those videos were all good, but I mean, I mean, even with us, I mean, it's kind of hard to find our videos. I mean, it's just just really high competition. So, Mel, what was your least favorite thing? You know, considering the challenges you faced, like what was your least favorite thing about your YouTube channel? Um, I would probably say that first year, the least favorite thing was pretty much just learning how to deliver where I sounded like I thought I, you know, or at least I wanted to. Um, I mean, you're really critical of yourself when you make content. You know, you will go back and you will watch your video that you're editing or listen to a video that you're making and you will critique the hell out of yourself and you will spend hours editing a video just trying to get it to your satisfaction. And I found, man, that I was really hard on myself because I wanted it to be better. I wanted the delivery to be better. I wanted the video quality to be better. I wanted segues and I wanted just, I just wanted the video to be better every time. And I spent so much time that, you know, I was just wearing myself out in post trying to get the thing the way that I wanted to. And I really put a ton of stress on myself. Mm -hmm. And that was actually one of the reasons why it led to me closing the channel down because the way that I was going in that first year and when my channel began to get popular, I, it actually got worse because I went from putting, you know, two or three hours a day into it, trying to, you know, improve my videos. When I started to get popular, I was like, man, I think I'm going to actually have a shot at making it here. I started putting in six, seven hours a day. You know, I was literally working two jobs with my real life job and then coming home. And I had a whole nother job making YouTube content. Wow. Yeah, the stress, the stress of that really got to me in the end. So do you feel that in terms of a lot of the YouTubers getting comfortable and just making the content, it just it feels more of a job than actual something fun that people want to do? Is that how it started to feel for you as well? that's a real danger if you're starting out as a YouTube or, or any kind of content creator, really, you really do need to pace yourself. You need to have realistic goals where you are not running yourself into the ground. And nearly every person that starts this starts it because they love what they want. You know, they love what they do. They want to talk about something they're passionate about. And what ends up happening is, is you end up running yourself into the ground. You're hard on yourself. You're pushing yourself. You're trying to get better. And before you know it, it is a job to you. It's no longer fun. And you really find yourself in a situation where do you even want to continue it? Because now it's stressful as hell. And let me tell you something, unless you have 500,000 subscribers, you are not making YouTube content to make money. Because there is very little money in it. Exactly. So, Mel, you know, you've gained all this insight in the years that you've been doing this. And now that you've taken a little break from that and you're, you know, having this fresh start with your channel, are there any things that you're planning to change? Are you going to take a different approach? Actually, yeah, the channel has definitely gone through a renaissance uh, if you were subscribed to my content before, you are going to notice an immediate change in how I do my videos. When I started doing my YouTube content, 
as these are old games. A lot of them are not deep. A lot of them are single play experiences because so many of them sucked. And I wanted to cover a large variety of them in every video. Basically, I wanted to cover like 8 to 12 games in every video because I wanted to hit genres and game types that would appeal to every single player so that no matter what you were looking for, there would be something in my video that appealed to you. But, you know, I learned that that was a terrible way of making videos because number one, I was burning through the Saturn library like you wouldn't believe, man. I mean, in that year I was making Saturn videos, I covered a huge portion of the Saturn's library. And because I covered so many games, those videos were huge. You know, they were 20 and 30 minutes of big production time. And it was taking me three, four days of hard work to put these videos together. And, you know, I just realized that's not the way to do it. I've changed it for the uh, new channel and the videos are shorter. They're more targeted and focused on single uh, games or a series of games. And I still think if you were subscribed before, you should still enjoy it. I'm still, you know, I'm still putting a, a lot of passion and love into it. So hopefully it'll work out. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that uh, you went on a little bit earlier is that uh, the Saturn saved your life. I mean, literally saved your life. Could you uh, clarify that a little bit for us? That's actually a pretty long story. Um, I'll try to sum it up for you guys we as best time. I can. All right. Uh, basically, at the end of 1993, I am graduated from high school. I have got a job with a security company. I am engaged to my high school sweetheart. I have a brand new baby girl that's a few months old. I am pretty much locked and loaded on where my life is going to go. And I put myself in the wrong place at the wrong time around the wrong people. I got myself into a lot of trouble. I wound up getting myself arrested and I was incarcerated. It was a span of four months. This happened. Everything went down. I went through the court system and I was in jail, you know, and my life absolutely nosedived at that point. I lost my fiance. She left, took my baby girl with her. I, of course, was incarcerated, so I lost my job starting classes at a technical college for an electronics technician, which I had to drop out of at that particular point. Went from absolutely, you know, perfect, I knew where I was, to I lost everything. And uh, I didn't serve a lot of time, thankfully, because they were my first offenses. But I got out of jail in early 1994. And I got out. I had nothing. I lost everything. I was in a very funky depression. And let me get this clear. Depression is something that you have no idea what it is until you experience it. When somebody said they were depressed, I thought they were sad. No idea the clinical meaning of depression until I went through it. And I was the lowest of the low at that point. Lost everything. Just gotten out of jail. I didn't have the hope that I had had before. And I was thinking very dark, 
very bad thoughts, man. And my mother made me go to the store. She said, get out the house, you know, do something with yourself, get back out there, find, find your way again. And while I was out the house buying me some groceries because I had stopped eating, I saw on the rack a game magazine talking about the new video game systems coming out that year. And in that magazine, it started to talk about the Sega Saturn and the Sony PlayStation. I read it and I kept reading it. I read the same articles in that magazine over and over when I was a kid, man, that my biggest passion in life was gaming. It was my hobby. It was the one thing I loved and I was good at. And I focused on it hard. I mean, I focused as hard as I could to get myself out of where I was. You know, that darkness, man, was clawing at me. It was pulling me down. And, you know, I just, I, I needed anything that had, you know, any hope of me getting out of that. And I focused everything I could on that hobby and what was going on. And so what I did was, is, is I started making plans. It's like, Hey, the Saturn is coming out later this year. If I want this thing, I need money. I don't have a job right now. Let me go out and get a job. So that's what I did. I went out and I got a job. This is an entry level job. It sucks. I want a better job. I need to go back to school. So I went back to school and what I did was, is that was my focus. I wanted a job. I wanted a better job. And all of this was leading up to, I'm going to buy the Sega Saturn the day it launches in Japan. And that right now is my life's goal. I'm not going to think about anything else. I'm not going to think about everything that has went wrong in my life. I'm just going to concentrate on this machine. And that's what I did, man. And I got that job. I went back to school, I got a better job, you know, and I bought that system the day it was available and I reconnected with a friend from high school I hadn't talked to in years. He was a Sega fan, he was interested in the Saturn. The job that I actually ended up getting, I met another girl and before you know it, I had a best friend back. I had another girl in my life to show me that, hey, life isn't over, man. There's, you know, there's always another one out there. And before you knew it, man, I was back almost where I was before. And concentrating on that system, my love for the hobby, my love for Sega pulled me out of a place. I can't even begin to tell you how bad it really, really was then. The thoughts going through my mind were awful and I mean, I'm sitting here today, believe it or not, as cheesy as it sounds, as stupid as it sounds, because I focused on that one hope, that one thing from my childhood that I loved, and it got me out of that bad space that I was in. Wow. That was a great story, Malik. I I'm really happy for you that you're able to really get that piece from a little console from Japan and all that work towards it and made you a better person. It's I'm really happy for you that you overcame everything. Thank you, Sega. And hopefully you're also doing well today. Yeah, oh, man, Mel, no. you, you took that U.S. <laughs> advertising to heart. With, with Sega Saturn, nothing else matters. He, really headed, <laughs> he, he literally headed for Saturn, and he made it better for himself. Well, I don't even know how to follow up. Uh, so that was a great story. I'm really glad that you were able to tell us. I'm going to close out this interview with just one other thing. You know, we've been kicking around. We've been wondering, 
When your channel came to a close, it wasn't without a little bit of coincidence. You know, the timing on things, timing just fell as it did. But uh, one of the last videos I saw you put out was a video about a little black box that has become a subject of controversy, you know, in the retro gaming market. It was called the CD. And I, you know, I just want to kind of put this topic to bed because I know that there are, are a lot of folks out there that, you know, might speculate on why you closed down your channel and they might think that that has something to do with it. We all know that that is not the case. But if you could just speak openly about that and just let us know, what was that whole issue with the CD console? Well, the CD console was... I mean, it was a great learning experience for me in the end. Um, it was a combination of, you know, enthusiasm, ignorance, and just the complete lack of me doing my homework on what I was doing. I mean, I can't be mad at them for it because, like you say, the coincidence was really unbelievable because I dropped that CD video there was a bit of controversy uh, uh, swirling around it. And then literally, what, two, three days later, I closed my channel. So, you know, it wasn't hard to, you know, go far to reach the conclusion that one had something to do with the other. What happened was, is, is that uh, months before that video dropped, I was approached by the guy that was in charge of the CD project. Was I interested in a classic video game system that played CD-ROMs? You have to remember, my channel is tiny. You know, comparative to other places, no one has ever stepped forward to offer me a prototype of any kind. So, of course, I was excited for it, man. I was like, yeah, you know, I'll get to cover a prototype on YouTube, man. I'm really coming up. And that's where that enthusiasm part came in, man, because I was really excited for it. The mm -hmm. ignorant part came because, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. How the people on YouTube or Twitter or Reddit or whatever, I didn't know that they would take anything that I said or put on my channel as a vote of confidence in a product or they would see it as an endorsement, you know, I was just looking at it as, as I was just bringing it to the attention of people. I didn't review it. I knew it was a preview product. I said in the video multiple times, hey, this thing isn't done. I don't have the final software for it and so on and so forth. So that's how I was looking at it. Well, of course, when the video dropped, I had multiple people hit me in the comments with, hey, this thing is just an orange pie and they've stolen the software. Now, to be perfectly clear, I, in the beginning, thought they were just talking about the system requiring the BIOS files. The, you know, initial problem was I actually did not know the real reason behind it, that the uh, Libretro and um, RetroArt guys, their software was actually running on the thing. Of course, I put the video up telling people about it. Hey, this thing is cool. Oh, my God, it plays Sega CD games. And look, it runs Dracula X. And you can, you know, go to Indiegogo and you can buy your pre-order one here. It comes out next year. Well, then, of course, that, that's when the entire thing just came to my attention like a flood. And what a mess after that. 
isn't it true though that they only let you have it for like two days and you were sworn to not open it like you weren't even allowed to open it up correct um i actually received it on a friday i was told do not open it the software and hardware is not final this is simply a preview prototype and i could keep it for two days and i had to send it back so i had the unit for two days i could not open it i didn't know what was running inside the thing and i sent it back to them and again that was where the ignorance part comes in so hard for me because because it was appearing that i was putting my stamp of approval on it without me knowing these things i was basically asking for it you know i was asking for people to question me about it because i didn't really I didn't ask any hard questions about it. I was just excited to have the thing. I was just telling people, hey, this thing exists. And it ended up being a lot more than that. And boy, once it became known that it was just an orange pie and it became known that it was using software from some other place that did not give their blessing, it became a problem. Yeah, I think one of the other the other issues that uh, it was actually brought up on a podcast where uh, some of the, the critics, um, I think it was DB Electronics, HD Retrovision, uh, mentioned that the the use of the BIOS, they what they wanted you to do was essentially get the BIOS from your other systems, but I mean practically nobody could do that. So they were saying, oh, find it online or get it online. And it's and it's like it's illegal to do that. I mean, emulating it isn't illegal, but using the the proprietary BIOS of PlayStation and Sega. I mean, it's it's just it's there's no gray area. It's just illegal. So mm-hmm. I think the fact that CD was asking people to commit a crime to use their system at its full potential was uh, one of the big one of the biggest issues as well. On top of using this orange pie, and it's just you know an orange pie connected to a CD drive. Yeah, when it really comes down to it. Um... When I reviewed the thing, they did tell me, full disclosure, that you would need to put the BIOS in yourself. And this is my personal opinion, that what you choose to do in the privacy of your own home is none of my business. Interested in these devices are grown adults. You know exactly what you're getting into when you get into emulation. You know know that when you use MAME, On your arcade cab, you are loaded to the brim with illegal ROMs. You know that. Everybody knows that. When you emulate a Sega Saturn and you want it to run the best it can run, you are using a BIOS that you downloaded off the internet. Everybody knows that. It's no secret. So when I presented that, that was another big point of the ignorance part, that you really need to preface it with, hey, This is illegal, guys. If you do this, you need to understand that. And in that video, I did not do that. And that was another big problem, I think, that people looked at it like, hey, man, you know, you have to steal to run these CD games, you know. And it's true, you know, they were asking you to do something illegal to even use the machine. And me not making a point to put that in the video in more depth than I did was a huge mistake. Yeah, but I'm just glad that uh, we're sort of getting that all out in the air and 
you know, we're, we're just showing that, you know, there's nothing really malicious in any way. It just seemed like you really just didn't review it to where a lot of people were expecting it to be. I mean, but again, a lot of it, like you said, well, was the the requirements you got. I mean, you couldn't open it up. You couldn't show the internals, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I couldn't open it up. I couldn't, you know, I mean, and they told me that the software wasn't finished either. The, the machine that I previewed had no front end whatsoever. When you cut the machine on, it was it sat at a CD um, uh, emblem on the screen, and when you put a disc in, it auto-launched the disc. So it had no front end to speak of whatsoever. They told me that it was going to be proprietary software for the front end, and it was going to use publicly available emulators. I didn't think to question it any further than that, and... When the um, LibRetro situation came out, I actually, like, the next day after, you know, I realized that this was going to be controversial, I realized it was kind of like, hey, you know what, I'm going to contact this guy through my personal Facebook and talk to him. And so I contacted the guys whose software was actually being used on the thing, realized instantly that this team that that does the retro arc uh, stuff, that they very bad business experience with the CD guys because this guy was openly hostile about the whole thing, man. And I was like, I understand. This is who I am. I previewed this product. I did not know the story behind it. And I talked to him about it. And he made it very clear that he did not want to give CD any more publicity than they already had from them. He wanted them to go away. He felt that if he did not broach the subject, less people would know about it. Or in other words, if he talked about it and gave them the press, then it would just lead to other people giving them press because of that subject matter. You know, no such thing as bad press, in other words. And um, he told me, he was like, look, man, They took our software without our blessing. They basically told us to piss off. We're going to use it and there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, I was like, man, that sucks. I'm so sorry that it went that way. But, you know, like I said, he told me he did not want to give them any more press. You know, he did not want to talk about it. And so I respected his wishes and I was like, okay, man, I understand completely. And then literally... 24 hours later, maybe 48 at the most, I got my doctor's news about the stress I was putting on my heart and what was going on. I closed the channel down. That video went down with the channel. And right then I considered the matter closed because nothing of mine was no longer promoting the CD. That came as a shock. I I think uh, I'm subscribed to you and have the bell, you know, notifications. And then one night, uh, you know, sat down. I'm like, I'm going to watch uh, my helping of Sega Lord X. And it wasn't there. And I was like searching YouTube, like, where's where's my favorite YouTube channel? <laughs> you know. And uh, I think that came as a shock to a lot of folks. And we've all missed you since, man. Yeah, um, I got to just say this just to everybody that's listening. If you were a subscriber to my channel, I am so sorry that I did it that way. I was very emotional. Um, Basically, what it was is, is I'll just go ahead and say it. Um, I was diagnosed with a condition of my heart that caused heart palpitations. 
some pretty heavy medications ever since that helped straighten that out. And I haven't had any trouble with it until last year when I saw my doctor and they, you know, listened to my heart and they could tell that I was having them again. So I went through some more tests and they told me that it had gotten worse and it had gotten worse because I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't exercising. My lifestyle at that particular point was making this condition so much worse. And I was told, look, you are, and I was at the time, you know, you are 42 years old. You are getting up there and this problem is getting worse. And you need to do something now before it gets to a point where we can't reverse it. Man, it blew my mind. It, you know, you start thinking about mortality, dude, and it changes your whole life view in every single way. And like I said, it was a knee-jerk reaction. I came home. I told my wife, hey, closing the channel down. I'm not losing any more sleep over this damn thing. You know, this is it. This is done. And I pulled the channel. And, oh, my God, there were so many better ways I could have done it. And like I said, to anyone that was subscribed and liked my content, I really do apologize for doing it that way. So, we're uh, just glad you're back. <laughs> exactly. So... With that, let's uh, let's uh, close out the interview. Um, I want to thank you, Mel, for stopping by and sort of talking with us. I know a lot of that was uh, must have been very difficult for you to talk about, but I mean, we really appreciate it, and I imagine your fans do as well. With you being open and honest about yourself, absolutely. It's it's no problem, man. I'm just I'm just glad to see that there are more Sega fans out there on YouTube. You know. I'm glad to see that, you know, more people are trying to get content out there to show people that, uh, you know, Sega, Sega meant something to this hobby once upon a time. And, you know, coming on here and, and talking about some of that and, you know, me personally, you know, it's been great. And you are due back in full force April 15th, correct? Correct. On April 15th, my videos will begin dropping again. I'm not going to have a regular schedule. I'm just going to sort of put them up as I finish them. But the changes that I've made to the channel may actually make these videos more frequent than they were before. So we'll see how that goes. And, you know, April 15th, man, I'm really excited about it. Do you want to plug which video you're going to uh, you want to release first or do you want to keep that a surprise? No, I'll plug it right now. I'm leading off with the uh, Sega STV Titan arcade board. I'm actually going to talk about it, show it, uh, show the games that I own for it. I actually own the board. I'll talk about how, you know, the system can be hooked up to a modern television. And I'm going to talk about, you know, piracy for it. Because believe it or not, there is piracy for arcade boards that use cartridges, man. I mean, you knew the Neo Geo was like that because the Neo Geo was a popular system. But who the hell would make pirate carts for the Sega STV Titan board, man? And they're out there like you wouldn't believe. When I actually first bought the STV, man, it was one of those cases where I ran headlong into counterfeit games and had no idea they existed. You know, I would buy the cartridge and look at it and be like, man, something's just not right about this thing. So, you know, you kind of open it up and it's like, man, what the heck? And I became very cognizant, man, that in Asia, basically there were no official STV cartridges, man. Every single thing was bootleg. 
Is STV just okay. strictly JAMA regular, or is it any specialized JAMA? The board itself is JAMA. Uh, you will get some specialized audio hardware that would have to be used with some games. Like Batman the Arcade game used a daughter board that was proprietary to the STV, and the game won't. The game has no music or sound without it. So yeah, I'm going to be covering that stuff. I gotcha. Yeah, Do you have I a consoleized. Actually, a few years ago, I had to give up my arcade machines, so I actually started collecting arcade boards, and I made myself a super gun, and I use a super gun for all of my arcade stuff because I try to keep it original. I don't want to modify it to consoleize it. Nice, yeah. I, I was hoping to go down that route as well, so maybe we can have some side chats, because I really want to get the STV, and I really want to get the Naomi system up, so... Yeah, so thank you, Sega Lord X, and uh, check him out on his YouTube at Sega Lord X. And uh, do you have any other social media you want to plug? Your Twitter, Facebook? No, actually, the only other place that I have is Facebook. I'm Sega Lord X there as well. I do some blogs. I post some thoughts. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, see me talk about some other things there, you can definitely follow me on Facebook. And we've thank made you. him a part of the Shiro team as well. And we will be pushing out and promoting his content as well. So that's exciting. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much, guys, for listening. All right, guys. Well, that was an awesome interview. And I figure since we have Mel with us to join us here it might be fun to tag on to the topic that we spoke about last cast where we read through the saturn white paper and we looked at a very confident sega who thought it could do no wrong we basically discussed how they would go on to commit several missteps over the saturn's life that would ultimately change the course for sega as a company so in this episode what i thought we would do is let's take a moment to speculate on how things might have been different for Sega and the entire video games industry at large if Sega hadn't made so many irreversible mistakes. I think one of their biggest ones is the uh, overly sophisticated uh, system architecture. I mean, it just was a mess, right, Dave? Yeah, we did talk about that. The console was admittedly... I mean, the console was over-engineered from from the get-go. And, uh, you know, there was a perception among the industry that it was notoriously difficult to program for. And so, you know, you had um, that perception among developers, and it was also just among the industry and all of the trade mags and stuff like that. So one story or thing that we hear about in, in Saturn's history is how Tom Kalinske of Sega of America, he basically had an early proposal to SOJ. He came to them with Silicon Graphics and said, we can partner with Silicon Graphics. They've got this awesome 64-bit chip. Um, they've got this technology. And if we partner with them, you know, we could be the leading edge. And basically, Nakayama turned him down flat out. You know, SOJ just was not behind that. They really wanted to go with those twin Hitachis. Is this before or after the STV hit the uh, market? Well, this is when they were really trying to mock up the, the Saturn design. This, so this would have been like late 1992. Um, it was when you know the Genesis was full steam ahead. They'd taken 51% of the market share. 
and they were trying to you know work on what Saturn would be. And the STV is at that point they had decided on the twin Hitachis because that was basically the same architecture as the Saturn. You know, they and that's part of the reason is they wanted to do the whole thing where they they started in the arcade and then they ported to home on a similar hardware. Um, and they really, you know, at this point, Tom Kalinske and Sega of America had pretty much spent Sega into a deficit in order to gain that fifty one percent of the market share. And that was a part of, you know, the traditional American business axiom of spending yourself into a profit, which conservative Japanese corporate execs, they just don't understand that. They are very conservative and they like to have cash reserves, you know. So they decided to to stick with their guy, Hitachi, and they did not want to allow this American chip manufacturer to come or, you know, SGI. They didn't want to allow them to come in and, you know, basically be under the hood of their next gen console what i want to do is kick it off with the first speculative question what if sega of japan had said yes to kalinsky's silicon graphics proposal well i think uh the nintendo would definitely be in a little bit of hot water or maybe would have to reinvent the way they do the n64 i mean because as we all know the 64-bit machine that was proposed by sgi silicon graphics is what we all know as the Nintendo 64. So it's yeah. definitely really interesting, and I, it definitely makes me think: what would the Nintendo? It's asking me, what would the Nintendo 64 be like if it had that C drive capability? But I mean, all in all, I think I really like the look of Sega's console. And while I think it would be a little bit easier to develop for, I think without it, it wouldn't give the Saturn its look and the feel that it does nowadays. Uh, and who knows how good 2G technology would be on there? as there is not a lot of uh, 2D games on the 64 to uh, measure up to. You're right about that, Pat. I mean, sure, it would have been much, much easier to program for. And, you know, maybe we would have avoided the limited library that kind of resulted from these twin Hitachis that people had to try to learn to work around. But, um, you know, I don't think that I personally would want to lose that, um, that look that the Saturn gives us from its VDPs. As much as, you know, I do like the 64's graphics, I think that this Saturn would lose what makes it the Saturn if they had went with that Silicon Graphics proposal. That's funny. So it's like, for better or for worse, it's kind of like, even if it would have been a good business move, it would have changed the Saturn so much that it wouldn't be the Saturn that we all kind of know and love. And I mean, I don't know, that might be a good thing for some folks who didn't really look at the Saturn with much love, you know, but I know for us, it's like it would vastly change the look and feel of games. Right. Yeah, definitely. What do you, uh, what are your thoughts on this, Mel? Um, honestly, I'm a big, big fan of the Saturn architecture. I do not believe that the reason the system failed was because of its architecture. Um, failed was because Sega didn't have the tools to use that architecture um, quads were nothing unusual in the industry. The 3DO used quads and most Polygon arcade machines used quads. And even the uh, VDP2 nature of the system or VDP1 and VDP2 nature of the system. I mean, with time, I think those could have been figured out fairly easily had mm-hmm. Sega had the tools to give the third party developers you know the failure the failure of that architecture was on sega not the architecture itself and while that's true i think the silicon graphics 
you know, chipset would have been easier to program for and possibly could have made things easier going forward. The reason the Saturn failed was because nobody in the West cared about its game library and no changes to the architecture would have made a damn bit of difference for that. But do you think that maybe if they knew it was a little bit easier to program for, they would lean more towards Sega, though? Honestly, I don't think so, because it's not like gaining the SGI platform meant you negated the ease of use for Sony. And Sony undercut Sega, uh, what they charged per game and how fast you could make those games. They undercut them there anyway. So it's not like because you automatically gained an easier platform to develop for, that would have stopped Sony from the freight train that it was already on, man, you know? Yes, it may have made things a little bit easier, but Sony was still there. Sony was still cheaper to make games for. Sony was still pumping games out faster for their third parties, and Sony still had that unbelievable software where basically the developers could just come in and click on and off for transparencies and light sourcing. Mm -hmm. These things would not have changed. Sony was still an unstoppable force. And that really goes into our next topic, the lack of sufficiently good development environment early on. I mean, like you were saying before, I mean, Sony had these all in place, which made it a lot easier to push these games out. So, I mean, what if the Saturn had received that fully developed environment from day one? Devs finish their projects in time for the launch. Will the devs split the game titles a little bit more? I mean, if they had good tools like Claire mentioned in the, in the last cast, you know, if they had that graphics library day one, um, you know, they they wouldn't have need to do a rush launch. They would have had plenty of time to develop, you know, and there would have been more confidence. Well, that stronger 3D support over the lifetime, would games like uh, Shenmue and VF3 be possible? And would that be released on that console had the development been smoother and not been pushed to the Dreamcast? Yeah, you know, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that that might be possible considering that those one to two years when um, we were first seeing games come out for the Saturn that were hard-coded in assembly, we might have skipped that phase altogether. And, you know, we might have seen titles that were much more put together using that, you know, things like that Sega Graphics library from the very start. So that might have changed where the Saturn ended up. Well, Pat, you mentioned games like Shenmue and Virtua Fighter 3. As we all know... Sega was kind of hinting that those games would only be possible with a add-on that would turn the Saturn into a 64-bit machine. We can go back and look at that first point and say, well, what if the Saturn had been a 64-bit CD-ROM console? We wouldn't have needed an add-on, and we very well could have had, you know, arcade-perfect ports of, like, VF3, and we could have also had maybe Shenmue running on that console. I only know of one other... 64-bit CD console. It was the 3DO M2, which, you know, never saw the light of day beyond, you know, some some prototypes that are out there with a few games developed. But, you know, that just that just kind of makes you wonder what what it could have been like if if maybe companies like Square might have even looked at Sega, you know, might have even given them the time of day if they had had a platform that could have handled, you know, some of the stuff that they were putting out. I just think that for a 64-bit using what we had, I think maybe they would, but, I mean, they might have ran into the same issues with that 32-bit processor. I mean, Shenmue, even then, as it was known as the VFRPG Akira story, mm-hmm. it was it was programmed with the 32-bit in mind. Sure. 
So, I mean, I, mean, I think we can all agree that the Saturn is an incredibly Japanese console. I mean, it feels very Japanese. Most of the library is Japanese, and I know that Sega Japan did not want it to feel like a Western console, and that's probably part of the reason that、um, I mean, Nintendo was able to manage that. And, and、uh, but still, I would say that the Nintendo 64 felt like a much more Western console than the Saturn ever did. I wouldn't say Western. I would say more worldly and a lot more broader. I mean.、Mm-hmm. I mean, just all the games on there. I mean, it could easily be re- released in each region, and nobody would really bat an eye about it. But, but we all know that the Nintendo 64 didn't really do nearly as well as the Saturn or the PlayStation in Japan. So I think that speaks to the fact that by going with the Silicon Graphics chip and by、uh, trying to appeal to a broader, you know, Western audience, it didn't really go over so well in Japan. So in hindsight. Has it aged well as a result? And do people look on it fondly? You know, I mean, those of us that like, you know, Japanese gameplay and and that kind of thing. It all comes down to opinion in the market. I mean, I mean, as Mel also talked about, he really was attracted to the system, even though it wasn't Western based. So,、mm-hmm. I mean, it it all depends on the audience. I mean, maybe in the Dragon Ball Z era of you know cartoons, maybe it would it would have gone over well if it's marketed better. But you know. If if Sega had you know been able to deliver that development environment, then everything Mel said would have held true. I mean, the 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 architecture would have been fine just the way it is if those devs would have gotten a fully featured development kit and、uh, software graphics library day one. You know, to,、uh, franchises like you said that started on the Saturn, like Tomb Raider, might have stayed there,、um, and and you know we might have gotten more games like that. We also need to be realistic about the power of that 64-bit processor from Silicon Graphics. It was ultimately what was finalized and released as a commercial product by Nintendo. And let's be straight: while it was a nice game machine, was the N64 capable of doing Model 3 arcade translations like VF3? So these pie in the you know sky dreams of ooh you know if they had had the STI chip we could have done Virtual Fighter three no way man even with a CD-ROM attached to that chipset there's no way that architecture could have come close to those high-end arcade、uh, graphics of Sega's games. I still think that even if they had gone with the SGI chipset, you still would have run headlong into 1998. Where Sega was still struggling to get its games to look as good as PlayStation One games, and quite frankly, Sega was never in a position to undercut Sony's royalties that they were given those third parties. So Sony still would have gotten those exclusives. I still feel the hardware that Sega had was a very small reason. Why the Saturn failed, man? It was the Saturn's graphics libraries were completely immature in that first year. Third、mm. parties ran away from it, and that was it. So Nintendo was in a weird position because they, you know, they had a deal with Sony. It fell out. It was their own fault. Sony goes on for market dominance. Nintendo's hanging around looking for a solution. You know,、uh, Sega turns Silicon Graphics down. Tom Kalinske calls him up and says, "Hey, you know, there's one other company that might 
take you up on that chip and it's nintendo and they're just sitting over there still pumping out snes games like donkey kong country you know um doing doing all these like pre-rendered graphics and so of course nintendo said yes because they didn't have anything else and you know they had that that whole thing with sony fall apart and they needed something like that you know to to help them get into the next generation so i mean without that chip i think things would have looked more different for nintendo than anything you know like what would they have done the 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 snes was getting long in the tooth you know and that's you know maybe speculation for another day but uh but it definitely gives us something to think about and i agree with what claire said about the vdps you know vdp2 takes uh, math from the central processor and it basically renders a bunch of sprites and then perspective corrects them on screen they used to call it bit blitting or blitting sprites but um it 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 creates a type of 3D that is incredibly signature to the Saturn. And without that, I don't know. Saturn games, some people would argue that they like the way that it looks better or not. But me, for one, I just think that it would kind of just change the way a lot of these games look and feel. I think um, we can all agree, because we just read the Sega white paper, that Sega of Japan kind of overestimated their own success and perceived dominance in the market. And they underestimated Sony's ability to actually compete and be like a viable threat. Absolutely. I think that the white paper that we read last week really revealed how Sega was feeling about things at this time. Um, They kind of had this overconfidence um, based on, you know, the Saturn sales in Japan, um, as well as, you know, the Genesis performance in America. And despite the fact that they were very reactionary to Sony, during the Saturn's launch, it seemed that, you know, part of them was still thinking that they were the top dogs. They were very, very confident. And how seriously, you know, they were taking Sony at this time is kind of debatable. There's kind of mixed signals coming from their actions at this point. I mean, in the U.S. and Japan are two different markets. I mean, you can't market the system the same way in both countries as there's different views, values, what's popular or not. So so something like an RPG, like... uh, some RPG-based games are really popular over there, but in the U.S., I mean, at the time, there wasn't really any popularity to them. No one really cared. I mean, I mean, Final Fantasy got got like three of its games skipped in the U.S. at that point in time. I mean, and that's one of the biggest RPGs in, in my opinion, history. It's just two different things, and I mean, they can't really read the Japanese market as well as the U.S. market and expect results. So what do you guys think, um, what if Sega of Japan and America had had a more unified um, marketing strategy rather than trying to go in two different directions in the two different places? Well, I think that if Sega of Japan hadn't been so overconfident, they might have been more receptive to Sega of America's suggestions. They might have agreed to a more unified global marketing versus staying incredibly regional you know they might have they might have gotten the sense that they need all the help they can get you know instead of just isolating themselves Sega japan is sort of the overlord for america and america couldn't really do anything without uh without the Sega japan's okay and is that mm-hmm. sort of the am i on the right path that dave yeah i mean like i said tom kalinsky spent Sega of america into a lot of debt And when that happened, they basically put the leash on him and they said, you're no longer allowed to make your own decisions. You have to answer to us. You have to call us anytime you want to, you know, take a step, basically. And um, that's just because, you know, like you said, 
they're different countries. They have different values. And, and Japan, they're a lot more conservative when it comes to business. You know, they just don't get why Americans think they can spend, you know, $30 million on a theater of the eye ad campaign and that that somehow will turn around into profit, you know? Um, yeah. That, that kind of stuff looks really immature to them, you know? It makes them lose confidence in their American branch, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, even even back then with the Genesis, I mean, they, they basically didn't really like the attitude in your face sort of marketing because, I mean, it, it just wasn't appropriate for the Japanese market, but... Mm-hmm. I just, I just think they couldn't see three inches from their face. A, a point that I kind of wanted to make was that um, they put out Virtua Fighter. And when they did that, I mean, you know, they had some really talented guys like Yu Suzuki. They had these talented arcade devs. They put out Virtua Fighter, but they, I don't even think they realized how much of a game changer that would be. And that, that release of Virtua Fighter came at a time when Sony had just been, you know, basically left at the altar by Nintendo and Sony was looking for you know a way to turn around and actually make this PlayStation into something and Sony basically followed Sega's lead I mean at that point Sony had no idea what they were going to do but when they saw Virtua Fighter they said this is it this is the future this is what we're going to do we're going to go full bore full 3D system and I just don't even think that Sega you know they were so overconfident in what they had going on but they didn't really see sony as a viable competitor well yeah i mean they didn't come with come out with anything so there's no need to to worry about them right but then we all know you know when they caught wind of the specs of the playstation that's what kind of put them into a whirlwind of you know having to go back to the drawing board and kind of retool the hardware you know to to kind of make it competent because they realize this is what the market is going to do that if sony's going to do this and they've got so much money and so much cash reserves they're putting all their weight into a 3d console well then that's where the market is going and that's where we have to be so then they lost all that time speaking of playstation why don't we go into the fourth point pricing the system too high for its intended market and uh mel maybe you could lead us in on this one yeah um as regards to the pricing, man, really, when you look at the way Sega did it, they sort of they asked for what happened, man. I mean, by releasing the Saturn early in North America and showing their hand and basically just letting Sony the narrative, anybody with any sense would have known that they were going to get undercut the second Sega showed their hand. And, you know, that's exactly what happened at that U.S. launch. You know, Sega comes out. They're waving their flag. Hey, we are launching today. Here is our machine. Here is our software. Here is our price. Everything's on the table. And all Sony had to do was say a different number, a lesser number. And that's exactly what happened. And that was so damaging to Sega because in that instant, Sega marginalized the Saturn instantly by saying, oh yeah, here's our product, be excited about it. And Sony said, you'll save $100 if you just wait for us. That completely flipped the narrative. It gave Sony all the hype in the world because they're going to be $100 cheaper. And their Saturn is this overpriced machine that at that point was being just skewered in the media for having bad looking games so then 
what do you guys speculate it would have been like if if Sega had dropped the Saturn at two ninety nine? I think they would lose money on the well, hardware. Th- no, they would. Yeah, no, they would lose money in general. I mean, that system was extremely expensive to engineer and release and market. I mean, the reason why they released it at that point is because that's what they could afford to do it without losing a ton of money. I mean, they lowered it later, but then they're making money on a loss, similar to what PlayStation did. I think it's kind of funny because people think that, oh, it's a high price. It went up for a long time. But, I mean, if you if you buy, like, an extra controller with PlayStation, a memory card, and a game, I mean, it's going to be about, you know, three, $400 at that point. No, it'll be about $400 at that point. You don't think, though, that by the time they lowered the price, it was kind of too little too late? Because, like, if they had had a low price point to begin with and they lost money the way Microsoft does, you know, they could have had a better sell-through and home install base to be able to sell software to. And then they wouldn't have had to give away all of their top-tier first-party software in those, like, three-packs, you know? They were giving away really valuable games just just to get people to buy it. So you don't think that hardware losses would have translated into software sales because people would have bought the console early on? No, because they already did it twice with two other systems. I mean, Sony gotcha. and Microsoft might have, but I mean, they had the C- the Sega CD they lost money on, the 32X they lost money on. Mm-hmm. This would just be another blow and they really couldn't afford it. I guess I, I, I see what you mean that way because Microsoft and Sony both have loads of cash reserves so they can afford to do stuff like that but maybe sega especially after kalinsky you know he incurred such a debt in america you know maybe they didn't have the money to be able to do that kind of thing they they still had a good fund set up but i mean once the saturn blew it i mean the dreamcast was their last hope well first of all there's a couple what ifs here if they hadn't gone with that architecture that expensive architecture they might not have needed to you know charge so much for the hardware but because they did i'd always kind of thought well if they had even decided to take a a, you know a considerable loss on the hardware they'd at least would have gotten it into homes and then they would have made it up on software but maybe that's just wishful thinking then it also goes into other what if with the ease of development and it goes into another point the whole launching an e3 thing i mean while he would announce it at e3 i mean sony just announced that 299 point so with that, I mean, they had the, they had games in development, and I think they would have had something healthy by the time it was coming out on Saturday, but it just wasn't there. I mean, they didn't have those game libraries set up to get that software in the thing. Mm-hmm. So even if they did sell it at two ninety nine, they still wouldn't have the software install base to put it out. So it's kind of like a dual double edged sword on this one. If they did it with with the price down, it would have been even worse. Claire, Mel, what do you guys think about a lower price point? Yeah, my perspective, I'm really echoing a lot of what both of you guys have said, kind of taking that and mashing it together. My perspective is that if the Saturn had had a library like the PlayStation did, it may well have been able to make up that deficit from a lower price point with software sales. I mean, the PlayStation made so, so much money um, with software sales. It had this massive library with games that all kinds of people like to play. I think that in order for the Saturn to, you know, have been able to make that 299 price point viable, they would have needed a much more expansive library in the U.S. to be able to make that up. And maybe we would have seen that had we had, you know, the other mistakes that we just discussed corrected, the 
complicated architecture or the lack of development tools for people to use. Yeah, it just seems like Sega kind of went against the old razor and blade axiom where it's like they they charged a bunch for the actual razor, but then they were just like giving away the blades, you know, in the end. And it, I, I mean, I don't know if that if it makes sense one way or the other, but uh, I mean, I can definitely see Pat's point of view. I, I, you know, I don't think that Sega just had loads of cash reserves that where they could just sit around and take a huge loss on hardware for too long. So, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe that lower price point only could have happened if they had gone with a simpler architecture like like Sony did, you know? Yeah. But you mentioned E3 in the early launch, and that actually brings us into our next point, which is alienation of potential system supporters. Because that early launch, as we all know, alienated a lot of people. You know, it alienated the fans who didn't see it coming and weren't able to save up money in time. It alienated uh, stores who, you know, didn't get to stock it on day one. I guess the question is, what if Sega of Japan and Sega of America had combined their efforts to market and support Saturn globally instead of doing this rogue BS? Well, I mean, stuff like this isn't really out of the norm to do. I mean, Nintendo of America and Japan did something similar where it was marketed differently. They had different teams to push this out. But I think they had just that global togetherness and... While they had games that were released here that were not released there and vice versa, I think they worked together in a better partnership and didn't have to fight each other. They trusted one another to do the right thing on each side of the border. Exactly. I think uh, altogether uh, for the alienation, I think one of the biggest ones definitely the Saturn's not our future. And it's kind of not the point I'm going to be making where it's like, oh, it was a fault of his. I think he was just trying to get the Saturn to be done with. And it did alienate people, especially with Bruni not putting out those RPGs and having a hard time getting those things out. But that was the... later in the game, though. I mean, that was much later in the game. What about the 32X? I mean, what if that hadn't, hadn't even been released at all and devs and consumers weren't stuck with an unsupported platform? Well, I, th- I think that would have helped, helped it, but I'm just t- talking about in general for the alienation. Mm-hmm. I think that the 32X alienated customers... While the while the Saturns on our future alienated developers and Bernie sort of alienated a lot of the uh, people porting these games. I mean, for for God's sakes, uh, the games that Sega made didn't even get to the system in the U.S. And that really says a lot about that system because I mean, I don't know a company that besides one or two games don't release a ton of games that they develop on the system that they made. To speak to the 32X issue. There was no reason for consumers who purchased that to have any confidence in Sega after they, you know, spent all this money on a device that wasn't even supported. I mean, what would make them want to buy a Saturn after that? I know that if I had been in that position, I sure wouldn't be feeling it. So if the 32X, you know, had never happened, I think that, you know, all the customers that were kind of put off by what went on there might have been more likely to support Sega with the Saturn. It would have been the clearer choice, like people coming off the Mega Drive Genesis, you know, would have had one thing to look to, um, you know, as their next step, you know, and I mean, I get that it was kind of like the budget, you know, it was just like, it was like life support really for the Genesis. I mean, that's how it kind of came off, whether it was intended to be that way or not, you know, that's what it ended up seeming like is just one more piece of hardware that was there to provide an iron lung for the Genesis, you know, to, to have a longer life, you know, and it just seemed to me to be as much as you know. I like some 32x titles. Don't get me wrong. Um, I it just seems to me like it was kind of unnecessary, you know, and that it really put the Saturn in 
a losing position, at least not an advantageous one. Just to throw my opinion out there, the launch of the Saturn in the United States is the single biggest cock-up in business history, in my opinion. I mean, it destroyed Sega in an instant. Let's be clear about this. This launch, the way it was handled, how it was revealed, what happened during E3, and the months that followed it are the reason Sega failed as a hardware company. And the reason I believe that is, is because everything leading up to it, during it, and after it was an absolute disaster. First, 32X never should have been done. No matter what Sega would have done at E3, Sony was going to undercut their price. So they were never going to win on price. Sony was a massive company that made its own hardware. Sega had to go get somebody to make their hardware for them. Sony made most of those chips that were in the PS1. They were going to undercut Sega no matter what. So when Sega announced at E3 that year, hey, our machine is out, we're $399, it didn't matter if they would have said it was $299 because Sony would have said we're launching for $249. Sony was going to undercut them. And let's get something straight. When Sega announced the Saturn, they announced a bunch of IPs that nobody had ever heard of and one racing game that, while popular in the arcade, had been absolutely dissected by the gaming media, and that was Daytona USA. There was no Genesis staples available for the Saturn. There was no Toe Jam and Earl. There was no Streets of Rage. There was no Sonic the Hedgehog. The titles that defined the Genesis were nowhere to be found. Sega fans, people that had supported Sega for years were like, where the hell are the Sega Sports brand at? And let's get let's be clear about that too. Sega Sports was a massive part of the Sega brand in the West. Guess how many Western-developed sports games were on the Saturn at launch? None. None. Zero. So, to be clear, that release was a disaster. Sony was going to undercut their price. Sega had no IPs that were identifiable from the Genesis. The arcade culture was dead in the West at that point. So nobody gave a damn in the West about Virtua Fighter. So when it really comes down to it, Sega needed that extra time to market the Sega Saturn, to make people understand that Panzer Dragoon was a special game. This is why you should play it. This is the hype they needed to build. But they didn't. Panzer Dragoon come out. Nobody knew what the hell a Panzer Dragoon was at that point. Really, Sega, that instant, that launch, that price, showing that hand with those games and 32X taking away valuable development time and resources from Sega of America so they themselves had no games to offer the system. Whoa, what a nosedive that was. So again, we have to remember that that surprise launch came at the demand of Nakayama and Sega of Japan. Tom Kalinske did not want to do that. Sega of America did not want to do that, but they, the hand was forced, you know? And that comes back to the question of, you know, what if they had combined their efforts to market and support Saturn globally? I don't think that that launch would have happened. I think that if they had truly been one company instead of a company divided, you know, they wouldn't have made terrible decisions like that. That you are right, Mel. I mean, completely 
tore them apart as a company and, and at that point just basically started a downward spiral that they were never able to recover from. One thing that I want to speak up about too is the people that think that Tom Kalinske was right about the Sega Saturn and how to market it. I am not a Sega of America guy. I sure. do not believe that they had the right idea either. Yes, it is true that Tom Kalinske railed against the Japanese thinking at the time, but Tom Kalinske was completely wrong himself. While Sega of Japan was completely reactionary to Sony and knee-jerked basically the entire first year of the Saturn, Tom Kalinske did not even want to compete with the PlayStation 1. It was Sega of America that believed the way forward to 32-bit was the 32X. They thought that price was all that mattered. I don't know if you guys have seen the Next Generation magazine that came out right around the time that the 32X launched where they interviewed Tom Kalinske. And he basically said, no matter how good the Saturn or PlayStation or Ultra 64 does, he's going to outsell them all with 32X based on just the price. Tom Kalinske was in full-on businessman mode where he believed if he got a console in people's hands at a cheap enough price they were going to buy it regardless of the quality of the software so yes sega of japan was reactionary yes sega of japan forced the surprise launch but tom kalinsky was on a completely different level himself those two halves of the company, neither one of them were right. Both of them were disastrous in their thinking, and you know how it ended up. And in a perfect world, I think we can all agree that the 32X never should have happened, and the earliest surprise launch never should have happened. And if those two things were the case, you know, things could have gone incredibly different for Sega. You know, if the Genesis had stayed around for another year, it would have brought in cash flow, easy cash flow, because it was easy to develop for. You know, I, I think, I think they. Well, I mean, they were releasing games up to '95 for that thing, and '96. I mean, no, '97, Frogger '97 came out. I mean, there was nothing stopping people from developing it. I mean, they just didn't support it. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I mean, Nintendo kept the SNES around for quite some time. They really bided their time, and had a late release with the 64 and i guess you know that worked out pretty okay over here at least so i don't know how I well the thing is the, the thing about the, with the the this the, the snes those that they had to i mean i mean if you think about it they didn't have the nintendo 64 release till 96 once the cd released they had say a cd they had enough games to hold it over until like this the saturn came out the, the Super Nintendo also had four times the color palette of the Sega Genesis, so it could actually go a little bit longer with better-looking games like Donkey Kong Country and whatnot and get away with it. I mean, by the time 95 rolled around, man, Genesis games were... I mean, they were starting to look rough, man, you know? I mean, trying to keep up with the later-developed uh, Super Nintendo stuff. I think yeah, the Genesis, exactly. Yeah, I, th I think the Genesis really was showing its age by the time 95 rolled around. You were in third generation Super Nintendo software. You know, you were having these special chips being dumped into mm -hmm. Nintendo cartridges to make them do more and sound better. And, 
you know, Nintendo was really smart about that. But I see what, you know, Dave is saying. Dave is basically arguing that had Sega done something similar, maybe the Saturn could have been pushed back, maybe even released a year later than that with a fully developed, you know, graphics library and a fully realized, you know, catalog of games that all looked and ran at 30, you know, looked great. High res, you know, perfect 30 frames per second, 60 frames per second for the fighters. How would that have changed Sega's fortunes? So I kind of see what Dave is saying. Well, I mean, I'm not I'm not arguing that they should have waited on the Saturn. I mean, I think the Saturn came out and it was a it was a huge smash hit in Japan. You know what I'm arguing is that given the the assumption, if we all assume that 32X never happened. Nakayama decided to just consolidate and focus and just cut everything else out and con- and focus completely on the Saturn in 96. And I think that if he had allowed Genesis to stick around just for cash flow, because it didn't, at that point, they had a bunch of leftover stock and it was incredibly simple to develop for by that time. I just think that it would have helped them cash flow wise. So I think one thing that we all need to talk about is one of the most glaring faults, um, at least for the Americas and for Europe, was the lack of system library containing good, diverse software. And my question to you guys, I'm going to open the floor, is what if Sega had loosened the limits and restraints on localizing more games from Japan? That's a really interesting question to ask. I mean, there's definitely a lot of ways you can could have looked at it. I mean... In Sega's view, they didn't think that the RPGs and all these other Japanese S games didn't have that popularity in the U.S. And they had a bit of data to back that up. I mean, Final Fantasy didn't sell anywhere near as as well in the America than it did in in you know uh, Japan. And I even talked about it a little bit earlier where they didn't even release certain Final Fantasy games in the U.S. And the same case with Dragon Quest and or Dragon Warrior. Like the kids would literally. It would literally shut down cities when the game released, but in the U.S. it was just like another shelf thrown on there. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think they, I think with the limited cash they had, it was like, okay, well, we could port over a Supergirl fighting squad or you know something like something very Japanese esque or an RPG, or they could port over something like you know Panzer Dragoon or just in general, just anything like an action game or a platformer. So you Where they know that... that it was multi-generational and multicultural. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, okay. Last last cast, we talked about how Sega thought that they had their opinion of themselves was that they thought they had their finger on the pulse of the consumer. But I'm just asking you to think about, you know, your mentality back in 1994, 95. I mean, do you think that American gamers, like true American gamers, were interested in? more import stuff and maybe Sega like obviously Sony saw that and took a gamble on it they brought over a lot more stuff from Japan and I'm just wondering if it was just Sega's failure to to see that early on well yeah it definitely was a failure but I mean you gotta keep in mind that Mel's case is a is a very 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 exception, very exception in the US I mean most people weren't excited for oh man I can't wait to play with my Magic Knight Ray Earth and or play, you know, read and Silver Gun. They were excited for tells they knew. They wanted Sonic. They wanted, you know, they wanted the Streets of Rage, like we were talking about earlier. They want things they knew, fun action games that they played earlier that they want sequels to. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually agree with exactly what Pat just said. Um, the problem here was is that Sega did not have the software that the West wanted. That was the problem. Sega of Japan is sitting there with Virtua Fighter, this hit that sells one to one with the console, and they're thinking, "Hey, we get that on the system in an early launch, and we're going somewhere." And that was not the case when the system launched in the U.S. Hell, when it launched in Europe. It was loaded with games nobody knew a thing about, and that was the problem. I am of the firm belief that if Sega had had a Joe Montana football at the launch of the Sega Saturn, if Sega had had a Streets of Rage four, if Sega had had a, to- a Toe Jam and Earl three, you know, if Sega had had a Evander Holyfield boxing two, if they had had these games that American and Western gamers. Knew everything about these games from the 16-bit days. These are the games that would have propelled the Saturn forward in the West. It wasn't Virtua Fighter. It wasn't Sega Rally. It wasn't you know Radiant Silver Gun. Later on, these games were very Japanese games. The West needed Western software, and the Saturn lacked even that. Everybody looks at the games that didn't come from Japan, but how much would those games have really helped? The truth is, is that the Genesis had this massive library of IP. That had been successful, and how many can you count? Actually, made it to the Saturn. There are so few of them, and that right there, I think, is where the uh, the Saturn's lack of, you know, diverse software for the West just nosedived the system. Yeah, you know, that is an excellent point. And to be honest with you, I think that the Saturn is kind of marked by just this character of kind of doing everything ass backwards. I mean, I find it endearing that I'm a Saturn fan, you know. I mean, I like the fact that they took risks and they kind of gambled everything on unknown IPs like Knights, you know, and like Clockwork Knight and stuff like that, Panzer Dragoon. But uh, you really think, Mel, like if they had just come out with a bunch of, you know, thrown the Americans the bone with, you know, games that were familiar to them, maybe Echo or I don't know, stuff like that. Streets of Rage. I mean, obviously Streets of Rage, but that game did well even in Japan, you know? You think think that if we had had a bunch of Western titles, it would have been a different game? I think it really depends on how they did it. The the truth is, is when you look at this, this system was going to have Virtua Fighter. It was going to have Daytona USA. The system needed these games because 3D was the buzzword. The problem was, is, is that these games... Unless you were an arcade goer, which, as we all know, arcades in the mid-90s were starting to disappear in the West at a pretty alarming rate, most people did not play these games. So Sega had nothing else to offer but these games. Sega didn't have any support titles. And, and again, Sega of America was known for its sports games. It's the reason why the Genesis was able to defend its market against the Super Nintendo for so many years. Sega Sports was a massive brand. Nowhere to be found when the system launched. When the system launched, Sega Sports was put on Daytona USA. 
Daytona USA was not a sports game because even though it was supposed to be modeled after NASCAR, it had nothing to do with NASCAR. The other Sega sports game was a soccer game. Guys, in 1995, nobody gave a damn about a soccer game. And the other game was Pebble Beach Golf. Pebble Beach Golf? Really? That's gonna sell Saturns? No, man. Sega needed their NBA license there. They needed their NFL license there. They needed a boxing license there. These were the games that sold hardware. Sony had NFL Game Day in its first year, and you want to know what? They sold hundreds of thousands of units of it with a brand new console on the market. Nearly one-to-one with the console in the U.S. because people were starved for that next generation sports experience and Sega did not offer it. Okay, I have a question for Claire. I just want to know, okay, Claire, she grew up PlayStation fan. She had a PlayStation. I guess my question is, if the Saturn received more Japanese imports, you know, localized imports, if it received more shooters, if it received more cross-platform ports... Uh, like Resident Evil 2 and stuff like that. Do you think, as a PlayStation fan, do you think that it would have been perceived as inferior to the PlayStation like it often was? Or do you think that wouldn't have made a difference? You know, I think it would have been a complete game changer. Um, I'm actually going to take a different perspective from some of the things that have been said um, and say that I think that the RPG hole that existed over here in the West was a really big missed opportunity I mean, thinking of the juggernaut that was Square on the PS1, they just put out hit after hit. And a lot of people um, that were coming into the fifth generation had never really experienced a JRPG before. And Final Fantasy VII was one of the first um, times that people had been exposed to this kind of game. So I definitely think that if the Saturn had brought some of these titles over, I think that there was a market here for it. I think that people enjoyed these games. And, you know, despite the fact that they were just kind of getting used to um, the style that was being presented to them, I think that, you know, the Saturn would have been more of a force to be reckoned with had they offered a more diverse selection of games. Because I know myself, I'm a huge fan of JRPGs, huge fan of visual novels, and I can't tell you how much I lament the fact that you know so many of these series like soccer wars were never localized over here so i do think that it would have made a difference i'm kind of in the middle about between you and mel but my i have a different perspective where i just think that the u.s wasn't ready for a rpg yet mm-hmm. uh, well all those rpg games i mean i think final fantasy 7 its whole marketing everything that square did really pushed it to where it was i mean where it's it's just this giant franchise. Once the Final Fantasy VII hit, Sega just pushed out these RPGs. I think they would have had a good chance, but not until Seven came. On, so, Pat, on PlayStation, what would it, what would it have taken for you to perceive back in the day the the Saturn on equal footing as the PlayStation? Uh, probably marketing to let me know it existed would have helped for one. Mm-hmm. That would have been a big, big thing. Uh, but even if you were aware of it, like I was, like mm-hmm. some of the guys down at the game store that would talk about it, you know, like it was a joke. Yeah. You know, what would it have taken in the in the games library to make a difference to you? The the thing is, is that I was a different person back then in the nineties. 
in 97 or 96. I mean, I was four and five respectively. I just knew that I wanted to play good games. If I knew the Saturn existed, I would have gotten it and played games that they had for it. And maybe would have gotten that over Nintendo 64. But the thing is, I didn't know it existed. So there's no marketing. My parents never got it for me. So, I mean, the first Sega system that I remembered after that was the Dreamcast, which I got and loved. I think if, you know, I had known or my parents would have known and got me that instead of the Nintendo 64, I think I would have been hooked. But Mm -hmm. the the simple fact is I just didn't know it existed. I think it was five and six around that time as well. So, And Mel, you were like in your mid-20s, right? When the Sega Saturn launched in Japan, I was 19. And when it launched, yeah, I was 19. And you knew about it because of a magazine? Generation covered the uh, PlayStation and Saturn through its uh, first, through that year in 94. From the very beginning of the magazine, they actually covered that these two machines were coming uh, what games to expect from them, and they covered them both right up until they both launched. And that includes Japan. So, you know, the knowledge was there that they were coming. If you were um, old enough the biggest... to read and buy magazines, I guess. And In, Pat makes a good point. I mean, being a four or five year old, you were left to like TV marketing. Oh, oh yeah, man. The the age difference here is definitely going to have an alter, you know, an altering effect on the perspective. Because, I mean, me being a little bit older than um, some of you, you know, I kind of saw it from a perspective of, hey, I was more in tune with the media of the time. You know, I was buying the magazines. I was already browsing the import stores to see what was popular and what was coming out so you know that affects my opinion a little bit so Mm -hmm. you know but but sega sega if if we want to do a real what if what did sega need to succeed sega i agree with claire needed to bring out more japanese games that would have given the machine an identity you know working designs released some rpgs for the saturn and guess what they didn't sell well the product because the system did not sell well the but system do you, also th- do you also think it has to do with the fact that america wasn't really ready for these rpgs or was it because i mean i was four or five at the time so i had nobody telling me oh you should play uh magic knight ray earth or final fantasy 4 whatever it was oh play super mario play you know uh sonic the hedgehog i mean what was your what was the climate like for those rpgs is the, the rp question. yeah I, I get what you're saying the rpg climate at the time was one of ascension is the best way i can describe it rpgs had really started to come together during the super nintendo's run the there was a build-up a slow build-up first final fantasy 2 or what was final fantasy 2 in the u.s what was final fantasy 3 it sort of begins to snowball right around Chrono Trigger. And then there was this massive marketing campaign for the PlayStation 1 where Sony Square built this perfect storm where it got everyone hyped for Final Fantasy 7. And that in tune with the success of the PS1 itself just created this explosion of interest in the genre and by the time 97 98 rolls around 
it's one of the most profitable genres in the United States. Just, you know, literally over the course of years of growing, it gets to that point. But Sega did not see it that way. Sega was looking at the success of working designs, which they had none. Working designs games did not sell well on the Saturn. There's a reason why all of those games cost what they cost, guys, because there were so few copies sold. Nobody wanted those games on the Saturn, but it was not a product because nobody wanted RPGs or nobody wanted that kind of game. It was because the Saturn itself was an utter and complete failure in the West. And that's why the system did need that variety, because it needed to attract people earlier so that they could appreciate those quirky Japanese games, man. This was a failure from the beginning. I mean, Sega simply did not have the games from the beginning to draw the attention of anyone. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like what I'm getting from a lot of this is that if you at that time were a gamer in the know and you were paying close attention you might have been likely to you make the to you know go out on a limb with the saturn you know and 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 it seems like a lot of older saturn fans you know are ones that like really were dedicated to it and they knew about it if you were just an average gamer you, you know you just really didn't know about it and and because of that you kind of went with the dominant market forces you know either nintendo or sony and so that leads us into our next point, which Pat already brought up, was just the piss-poor advertising campaigns. Yeah, I mean, like I was saying before, I'd never heard about the system until 2005. I thought it was Genesis to Dreamcast. What if Sega of America had followed Sega of Japan and Sony's example for next-gen advertising? Like, do you think that a Chuck Norris beating, beating the shit out of kids in the U.S. would have you know resonated with us any more than like the attitude campaign that they had well i mean it would be funny i mean they in japan they, they had a character that was memorable and people would talk about it. it's like oh did you see that weird commercial where the guy from common rider beat up a bunch of kids and a gi in the mm -hmm. middle of japan i mean it would be it would be really interesting and, and our marketing campaigns out here are showing that i mean look at uh, the old spice with terry cruz i mean that whole thing it's so popular people still quote it the same thing with you know these eccentric characters, like most interesting man in the world. You but know. what about back in the mid '90s, though? I mean, well, I'm, I'm going to ask Mel since he was of an age, you know, to be responding to TV ads like that. What do you think, Mel? Sega was guilty of a lot of things during that time, and definitely their marketing campaign was just atrocious for the Saturn. To look at it the way I was looking at it, half the time I didn't even know what the hell was going on in the commercial. You know, the TV ads for it, I would see the ads in the video game magazines. And these ads were weird, man. They weren't weird interesting either. They were almost off-putting. Like when your eyes would see it, it was like you immediately wanted not to see it. And this brutal man because you have to understand the marketing that had been done for the genesis the genesis marketing had been beautiful i mean basically genesis marketing from the very beginning was a big middle finger on a big colorful page of genesis games to nintendo you know they were basically saying f you nintendo we have these games you don't we're the best this is why 
And that attitude, man, had just skyrocketed the Genesis to, you know, it went along with their great games and, you know, you know what Sega had done right for the Genesis era. And it just went hand in hand with that and just created this perfect, you know, you know, this perfect marketing campaign for it. And it really made a difference. And in turn, Sega did the exact opposite with the Saturn. They basically took a failure of a system that was nosediving almost from the second it was on the market. And they created an ad campaign for it that was basically a weight around its neck helping it go down. One of the biggest things that they did right with the Dreamcast is get these people and get this attitude. I mean, there's that whole "I'll kick your ass" online with um, Limp Biscuit. I mean, you can say what you will about the band, but uh, but you know they had people like that. They had Snoop Dogg advertising it, saying, "Oh, I love playing the Dreamcast, playing sports games." You have all these people that are celebrities pushing this. I mean, they had common. I mean, they had the guy from Common Rider in Japan, and they had we had these celebrities. Imagine if they had a character like Shiro in the U.S. with Ice Cube. I mean, he's huge in the 90s. If they had Ice Cube been like, hey, son, play the Dreamcast or play the Saturn or like trying to like, you know, get people to play this, you know, shove it in their faces, you know, just throw it at them. Like, you know, give that Ice Cube attitude that he did with some of these other uh, movies that he's been in and just, you know, be like, hey, play the Saturn. You know how many people would have played it? You know, Kit Chandler's sports games. I mean, and those are the things that were the biggest sellers of the Dreamcast were the sports games. I mean, they at least would have known that it existed, that's for sure. Exactly. So, I mean, if they had a memorable commercial and people, you know, that would care about it, people would be excited for it. They'd have people buying these sports games. They'd have people buying these systems. I have to say to, to to what Mel said, I do think that after the fact, after the Saturn was already spiraling, like he said, because of the the stupid like esoteric avant-garde advertising that they had in the beginning they did try to go back to the you know mudslinging of you know fu sony they tried to you know call it plaything fly plaything you are not ready you know using their own advertising campaign against them and trying to say you know our our box has you know three processors or two process however many in whatever ad they wanted to claim that it had you know and the old you know the com- competition only has one processor, you know, and then they tried to do the same thing with the Nintendo 64 saying, uh, you know, it doesn't have games and and you're just going to be waiting around with a paperweight. So they tried to do that and go back and do that. But it was at a time where we already were not stupid and we could already see it failing. So it kind of fell flat, don't you think? Oh, yeah, man, that's that's kind of like, you know, me running up to a tiger and smacking it in the face. It's like, dude, you already have an image. You already know who you are. There is no truth other than what you can see. You really don't need to be doing this. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what, you know, that was, man. Sega lost. It was it was over by then. Their reputation was already what it was. There was no coming back from that. Doing it at that point didn't make a damn bit of difference. But I feel yeah. like if they had been more positive about, like, Knights, I'm going to go on record, even if you guys don't agree, and say that it's, like, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Saturn game. And that it's a beautiful game. Um, some people don't like it, and I understand that. But I think that it had so much going for it that if they just would have been more positive about it and, like, just shown people, here's a beautiful game, you know, and this is why instead of just trying to make the whole ad be about like some attitude and how PlayStation is inferior because people then were just like, 
forget you. I'm not even going to listen to what you have to say because, you know, we, we both know you're lying to yourself kind of thing, you know? Well, I just think it was too little too late. I mean, everyone already knew at that point, so the commercials were useless. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they would have brought somebody on, I mean, I don't know how you all, all feel about this, but if they brought somebody on with that power, I think they would have pushed it to yeah. the limit. I agree. I mean, I agree. Anything would have been would have been better than what we got. Gamers would have taken Sega more seriously if they had had better advertising early on. I, I definitely agree with all of these points. The bottom line here is that, um, you know, regardless of what mistake specifically we chalk it up to, the Sega Saturn brand was not as salient as Nintendo or as Sony PlayStation. Um, I know Pat had this experience and. So have I. Um, We didn't know what the Saturn was back during its original run. And I know that some of that can be attributed to the kind of area that I live in, in the countryside. But at the same time, um, the Genesis had presence here. The Nintendo 64 had presence here. And the Sony PlayStation had presence here. So I mean, mean, yeah. I I mean, I lived in these... I was literally a state away from Claire. But I was in Jersey right in the area where New York was. I mean... I was in that metropolitan area. I mean, people would commute to New York all the time, and I never heard saw one advertisement. I mean, it's the same area where Nintendo uh, got their shops and sold their NES system when it first came out, and there was nothing in the area. Hmm. So, Claire, it definitely wasn't the rural thing that was the issue, like you were saying. It was the fact they just sucked at marketing. So just closing out, I, I think we've spent enough time on that uh, that point, is that Sega had terrible advertising in the in the 90s um i think they kind of played their hand a little too early and i mean that in more ways than one obviously there's the reactionary sega of japan that insisted on an early rush launch but there was also the reactionary thing that that pat spoke to which was like them telling bernie stoller that he needed to go on record and and basically say that you know we're moving on and i think that that a lot of those decisions just came too early. It was always reactionary. It was always just kind of a little too early. If they had waited, if they had been a little bit more relaxed and let the market kind of work itself out, do you think that that would have made a difference? I mean, Bernie knew the money wasn't there. It was losing market share. They were losing profits. They needed to just cut it off and start that Dreamcast push, and which he did a fantastic job on, and it got him to a great place but i mean we all know it failed for different reasons but he wasn't in a good position to begin with like he did a great job i don't i don't i don't um deny that but i'm just saying every reactionary early decision that they made okay the 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 rush launch um lowering the console a couple of times uh, giving away the software for free every time they did something like that they basically told the market the industry and the consumer that they doubted themselves and that they were worried about, you know, basically they could see the ship sinking and that's not, that is not how you play your hand in business. You know, you don't want the consumers to pick up on that smell, you know, and be like, uh, I better stay away from this brand because they're sinking quick. You know, I just feel like every time they, they made it choice like that, it basically, dug the hole deeper for them what do you think mel well if you're going to do a what if you know what what would have happened if sega had done things differently you pretty much got to roll it back to when the system was designed 
you got to roll it back and look at the launches of the two systems. Uh, you got to look at the lack of games for the various regions. You got to look at the price. You have to look at the knee-jerk reactions. The truth is, is that if you look at this from a what-if perspective, you really come to the conclusion that Sega messed up so bad so many times. No one what-if could have saved them. They would have needed to done so much different. And, I mean, Bernie Stoller could be a whole episode for me, man, because I hate the dude. I mean, what he did to Sega was brutal, even though in a way I understand where he was coming from. Man, Sega did not need to project that to the public because that was basically a projection that said buying and supporting the Saturn. That's exactly what that said by him saying the Saturn was not our future. Guys, the Saturn was on the market for only two years or a little more than two years in the West Stoller dropped the the Saturn is not our future man think about that for a second a machine that has been on the market from a major company for two years is you're telling your customers that that system has no future if you looked at if you look at every failed console you know, from any generation, nobody has done that. And certainly nobody's done it in year two. I mean, are You've you friggin' kidding me? Count 32X. It, it really is mind-blowing that Sega would step forward and announce something like that because they'd already done it to you with the 32X. The, the poor people that had supported the Saturn were basically, you know, like I said, just given the middle finger. And you're trying to court new customers with a new system by saying, hey, for the second time in, what, three years, we're dropping a console? I mean, how do you do that exactly? These are things you do not these are things that a corporation should not have front-facing, man. Bernie Stoller should have kept his mouth shut until Dreamcast was ready. Then it would have been clear that Saturn wasn't the future, and it would have been clear what exactly that future was that would have maybe have made the transition a little easier for people that were still supporting Sega. And, I mean, think of how you, you talked about how working designs games didn't sell very very well well think about how working designs feels when they've got uh you know a bunch of stuff waiting in the wings for publishing and then <laughs> and then bernie stoller goes on record and says something like that well they're like well now we're not going to make any money you know because nobody's going to even buy even think about buying it you know they're all going to jump ship for sony oh yeah absolutely yeah. i think i think this app actually happened up with a bunch of developers that you just didn't hear about because all of a sudden you saw the release of software like uh dracula x just all of a sudden came out in japan in an unfinished state basically third parties were just trying to dump their projects tighten them up and get them out and that's why a lot of them didn't turn out the best yeah so uh I think in closing, really, there's no one issue that Sega had. It was multiple issues, and solving one would have definitely would have. I think if I think if they would have hit all of these, it would be even tight to even say that they would have been saved. Because mm -hmm. a lot of these are good ideas, but I mean, at the end of the day, we just have what we have—a system that didn't get a lot of love, 
got discontinued and forgotten about. And it's funny because it makes me wonder if the Saturn had done everything right and been a huge market contender and even held on to their market share, would we look at it the way that we do today? Or would it just be another Sony PlayStation to us? You know, I, I don't know. I wonder. But I know that the, the PlayStation was ubiquitous and that to me, even though we've all admitted and gone on record saying it's an amazing powerhouse of a system with a huge software library of excellent games, it doesn't hold the place in my heart that the Saturn does. And I just, you know, for better or for worse, I don't really know that the Saturn would be the same console if Sega had made all the right choices. Exactly, Dave. I mean, there's a reason that all of us here are Sega Saturn Shiro and not Sony PlayStation. So from all of us, I would like to thank everybody that tuned into the stream. And I would especially like to thank Mel, uh, Sega Lord X, for taking this time out of his busy day and his uh, his career to talk to us, sit down and have this discussion with us. So thank you very much. Definitely, Mel. I, I just want to thank you for not only sitting down with us today, but for um, joining us up as a team. And um, we're really excited to be able to support you going forward with your um, channel revival and just looking forward to seeing what kind of things we're going to see from you. I appreciate it. And it was great being here. It's great finding other, you know, people that have the passion that I do for Sega, the Saturn. You know, when I tried to do my YouTube channel the first time around, it was a by myself endeavor. I thought I could do it. And I learned the hard way that it takes a team to really put out some solid content. So, you know, anything I can do to help you guys out, I'm definitely all for it. And I really look forward to the future of that. Yes, and we definitely feel the same way. Uh, we're all very excited to see where this partnership will end up. And we'll be excited to see you on some of our streams and some more of our casts. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, anime is, uh, you know, I appreciate a lot of the older stuff. So hopefully I can bring you a, uh, a good perspective on uh, that as well. Absolutely. I, I'm really excited to see everybody that's going to be in our cast. Claire, you, uh, Sam from last Sunday, uh, even maybe even Kay or Dave if they'd like to hop on, or maybe possibly even Peter or Jazz. Like, I just love getting different people's perspectives on this. All right, so uh, before we go, uh, let's plug a couple articles. Um, we have the Panzer Dragoon interview that Peter coined. That was the interview with uh, Chaz. And uh, we also have the missed article that Peter's also uh, going to be touching up and should be releasing fairly shortly. And those are going to be really exciting. I love both games. And I'd love to learn more about them. What about you guys? Definitely. Um, if you missed our last cast where we had an interview. <laughs> uh, funny. <laughs> you said when you missed our last cast. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So if you missed our last cast where... Um, Peter and I did a little interview with Chaz about his 100% completion PDS run. You can catch up on that with Peter's article. He kind of summarizes the things we went over. And, you know, I really enjoyed reading Peter's missed article as well when um, I did some editing together with him. And I've never played Mist, and his article kind of inspired me to 
take interest in it. So definitely great stuff from him. We'd also like to uh, talk about our listener mail. Uh, unfortunately, because of uh, time constraints, we were not able to get to the mail this week, but we want to thank both Johnny Mono and Brandon Adams for their emails, and we will get to them next cast, and we'll discuss them in greater detail than we were on here. I love both those guys, and I imagine we're going to have a great discussion on that. Um, we'd also like to plug our Facebook group, uh, Sega Saturn Shiro. If you guys have any questions, want to get in contact, uh, interact with our audience, interact with us, uh, feel free to join our group. It's uh, the group Sega Saturn Shiro, which is our Facebook group, not our Facebook page. But like both of those, though, like us on our Facebook page and join the group. Yep. And, then, and if, if anyone has any um, questions, comments, um, things that they'd like to hear us discuss on the cast, please send us mail to contact at segasaturnshiro.com. And we just might read your mail on the air. So from all of us at Sega Senshiro and Mel, uh, we would like to remind you that you must play Sega Saturn.